1: Hi, just before we begin, I wanted to take a short minute to talk to you about how you can get your hands in something new from the Welsh History Podcast. Thanks to Tee Public, we have a new online store from t-shirts, stickers, hats, and everything in between. You can find them there, so have a look around, and you can do that at teepublic.com forward slash stores forward slash Welsh Dash History Podcast. Thanks, everybody, and on with the show. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode one fifty two. Men of Harlech. This episode's going to be a little bit different in part because we're going to talk a little bit about the past but we're also going to talk about more modern things to kind of give some context to something of a interesting subject matter. Now normally I don't usually swing back and forward in the in the generations yet but uh, but I wanted to do this because I wanted to cover Uh, both the castle and the the resistance that's being put up but also talk about the poem slash song that came out of it and kind of a little bit about the various versions of it that exist because I think there's some fascination around that so let's get started shall we um we're going to talk a little bit, as I said, about the defense of the Harlech Castle and by those men who had been harassing the Yorkists for the better part of seven years as the last bastion of Lancastrians, and specifically Lancastrians in Wales. Uh, let me start by quoting Cadw. Harlech Castle is regarded as one of the most important medieval castles in Wales. It is a textbook example of concentric castle design. It was built by the English King Edward I following the conquest of Wales, the main work being constructed between 1283 and 1289, with additions in 1295 and in 1323 and 24. The overall cost is recorded at 9,500 pounds, which would be about 9.5 million pounds today. Harlech was completed from the ground to battlements in just seven years under the guidance of its chief architect, Master James of St. George. The first era of castles, it was used with a wall-within-walls design. Another name for that is concentric castle, which basically means that it's a castle where there is two rings of outer walls, one inside the other. The inner castle is elevated to give it better sight lines and to act as another redoubt against invasion. Basically, the defenders have multiple stages of defense, which buys them time while under the protection of the castle while it's under siege. So in other words, if somebody breaks through the first line of defense, you have multiple lines of defense. This becomes much more complex as time goes on. And castle building grows into a much more important siege protection, and you end up having multiple layers of defense. If you were to go to Harlech or specifically Caerphilly Castle, you would see this in action. There's there's there is multiple layers of defense from water to ditches to walls after walls after bridges and all of it works to keep the castle from falling because you have to go through all these various layers. Meanwhile, others can come and help to resist by coming from the outside the castle, which is the whole point of it. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting with Carfilia is their stocks and supplies and things could be held on an island out in the little water feature that surrounds the castle, the moat, as we would sometimes describe it as. So there's a lot of defenses that can be built up by these castles and certainly Edward's castles were uh, the height of technological construction at the time. Harlech also has the advantage of being built on a rocky crag which rose straight out of the sea itself. Today the sea has since receded so you don't have that impression if you go to harlech now you'll see it surrounded by land but at the time it bumped straight up against the sea this gave it vital access to a small port or quay, which was meant at the, to be a place in times of trouble where the castle could easily be supplied by boats or ships the castle would then hold out during a siege and every siege after in part because of this access, which is also called the Way from the Sea. It's a, uh, because it scales below the castle and you have to climb up to it to get to it, it's a path of about 108 steps, which rises up a steep rock face. Um, This, of course, gives the besieged defenders access to supplies to ways of resupplying troops to, in some cases, retreating and escaping. And so for that reason, it was a very vital link. So a key point to taking this castle is cutting off these links, cutting off ways of resupply, which, of course, would happen occasionally. But largely, the reason why this castle continued to be a thorn in the side of Edward was because of the fact that it could resupply itself consistently and keep itself from being taken. In local mythology, the site of Harlech Castle is associated with the legends of Bronwyn, the daughter of Lior from the Mabinogian, but there is no actual evidence of a native Welsh fortification having ever built, been built there, though that doesn't mean that there might have been something that could have existed at some point, but because there's no archaeological evidence to date that has been found it's hard to say that there's any sort of that the legendary links actually match up with reality money to pay for the initial phase arrived in mid May of 1283 and carpenters and 35 stonemasons were dispatched and from June and July that work commenced during the construction King Edward actually visited the castle site And by the winter of 1283, the first 15 feet, or 4.6 meters, of the inner walls were constructed, allowing the castle to be defended in the event of an attack, even at that early stage. Interestingly as well, John de Bonnevillard was appointed the constable of the castle in 1285. The interesting point was, after his death in 1287, his wife Agnes actually took up the role for another three years, so you have this unique situation where the castle constable is actually being run by a woman, which is something very unusual in the medieval period, needless to say. In 1286, at the height of the construction, the workforce comprised of 546 general laborers, 115 quarryers, 30 blacksmiths, 22 carpenters, and 227 stonemasons. The project cost nearly 240 pounds a month. The castle was essentially completed by the end of 1289, having a cost estimated around, as I said earlier, nearly 9,000 pounds when complete in full. But at this point, it was 8,190 pounds, about 10% of the 80,000 pounds that Edward had set aside on his castle building projects in Wales between 1277 and 1304. Yet, for all its defenses and fearsome reputation, the castle fell to Owen Glendower in 1404, becoming his base of operations and shared seat of government for much of the life of his rebellion. But much like the English before him, the castle once again fell as the in- Glendower revolt ground to a halt. The reality of 15th century warfare was it was much harder to maintain defenses, which worked very well against stones, balls, and arrows, but struggled against cannons. The constant war of the medieval period meant that there was a constant arms race. Everything from armor, ammunition, formations, and development of cannons and guns changed the way wars were fought, and siege warfare is no different. In 1464, William Herbert had been given a commission to finally put an end to the defense and harassment coming from Arlac. This need was sped up as Jasper Tudor made his way to Brittany to seek aid from them with a letter from King Louis XI stating his support for them, although that letter apparently mysteriously was never approved by Louis, according to him later. A lot of people suspect this is more to do with his political shenanigans rather than actuality. The Duke of Brittany supplied a navy to protect Jasper from the Yorkists as he tried to return to Wales once more. We do not know actually a lot about the Welsh resistance in this period, but what we do know is that Jasper led raids across North Wales during it. I would take it that likely he was based in Harlech, but much like Owen Glyndour before him, he was like smoke to catch. Frustrating the Yorkists, even while other Lancastrians failed miserably. During this same period, between 1463 to 1465, the Lancastrians had tried and failed again and again to defeat Edward. The Duke of Somerset, for example, was killed along with many others in a defeat near Newcastle after seemingly betraying both sides. King Henry VI himself was found wandering the English countryside in 1465 by the Yorkists in northern England, and sent back to the Tower of London. His wife, meanwhile, and her remaining supporters and son, had all fled the island altogether. Yet, in the midst of all this disaster, Jasper Tudor remained at large. He was a consistent, complete, and total thorn in their side. He arrived at Harlech at June 24, 1468, to set again to cause problems for Edward. He gathered 2,000 men and then captured Denby Castle once more. As an act of defiance, and to basically show that he could do whatever he wanted, he burned the new part of the town to the ground, more or less as a burning effigy to the futility of Edward's campaign. He struck all around Flintshire, causing enough damage that most of the county would not be able to pay their taxes for up to five years after the fact. He had become more than a slight nuisance. The continued presence of Jasper in his base at Harlech was a complete embarrassment, and Jasper was becoming famous around Europe for his exploits against Edward, effectively tilting at the windmill for the Lancastrian cause. King Edward had reached his limit, and his irritation with this problem, this f- half brother of the in quotes, former king, needed to finally be dealt with. So he gave William Herbert the men and material to carry on the campaign to finally put an end to this war, or so at least he hoped. The troops made their way from both the north and the south splitting up into two major forces and slowly pushing resistance back to the castle. Finally, in August of 1468, Harlech Castle was surrounded, and as it was surrounded by the 7,000 men, over the course of that month, it would then eventually surrender. It did so at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. surprisingly with very little resistance and against the run of what will be told later in this story. Poet Huel Daffy told of men being shattered by the sounds of the guns, with 7,000 men shooting at every port, their bows made from every yew tree, which sounds like a myth, made to defend those who gave in, likely because they knew they were beaten rather than from some sort of shell shock or arrow shock i don't know exactly what the term would be 50 prisoners were taken including the welsh constable and defender of the castle david Ab ab enan who had kept little harleck for so long alone faithful to the weak crown in quotes likely its defenders saw little point in trying to hold out against a massive army arrayed against it and on August 14, 1468, the defense of the Harlech Castle, the last Lancastrian resistance in Wales, came to an end. However, Jasper Tudor remained able to escape once more. Jasper is said to have made his escape either in a small boat or by hiding amongst the locals as a ship carrying a bundle of pea pods. Considering how wily Tudor had been at escaping over the years... It would not be a complete surprise if this is somewhat accurate. Jasper was able to get away and return to Brittany to continue to harass the Yorkists, much to the frustration of all of them. The legend of the Men of Harlech has taken on a life of its own ever since. There is a bit of conflict over the foundation of the famous poem and to whom the Men of Harlech refers. Some academics, find there is a dispute over whether this refers to the defenders of Harlech during the Glyndor revolt towards the end of that campaign, or rather those defenders of the Lancastrian honor. Likely part of this is due to the nationalism found in some of the lyrics, which were written in a Victorian era not well known for its uh, nationalistic tone on some occasions. The familiar music that accompanies the song was first published without words, in 1794 as Corhorfad Gyr Harlech in English March of the Men of Harlech in the second edition of The Musical and Poetical Relics of the Welsh Bards, but it was said to have come from an earlier song which we have little to no evidence of. That of course doesn't mean that it could not have been composed earlier, but we just really don't know one way or the other. And if Welsh history has taught me anything over the last few years, it's that without providence, it's likely a myth. The earliest version of the lyrics actually come from a printed version published around 1830. It was also printed over the years with other versions with different words. In fact, there are so many that honestly I couldn't quote them all here. Sometimes that means the same tune would be used with different lyrics, much like as examples my country tis of thee in the usa which is just god save the queen slash king repurposed to be one of their the young country's first national anthems which not gonna lie feels a bit weird when i hear it the first welsh lyric version of men of harlech was published in the gems of welsh melody edited by john owen a welsh poet in 1860. an edition containing Welsh and English lyrics, was then published in Ruthen, Wales, in 1862. The song was published in Volume 2 of the 1862 collection Welsh Melodies, with Welsh lyrics by the Welsh poet John Jones, or also known by his bardic name as Talheran, and the English lyrics by Thomas Oliphant, president of the Madrigal Society. Another source attributed to the Welsh word's to the poet John Kedag Hughes, first published in 1890, and it says the English words were published during 1893, but obviously this was clearly predated by many times. Older listeners of this podcast, or people who may have a fondness for older movies, may remember hearing the song in both the 1941 movie How Green Was My Valley, or from the 1964 movie Zulu, However, the words in that particular version are changed, and uh, the song is very popular, actually, amongst militaries across the Commonwealth, including Canada and Australia, and various places where it is used as uh, regimental songs in a few occasions. In one rather interesting, sad—I don't know how you describe it—story, uh, Rick. Rescorla, and I apologize if I murdered that name, was the chief of security for Morgan Stanley's World Trade Center office, and it was claimed that he sung a Cornish adaptation of the Men of Harlech in a bullhorn, along with many other Cornish and other songs, to help keep employee spirits up while they evacuated during the September 11th attacks. And uh, after helping save more than 2,700 employees, he returned to the tower to help evacuate others until it collapsed. Now, to kind of give you an idea of what these versions are like, I'm going to read them, not try and sing them, because goodness knows I'm not sure you want that. But just to kind of give you a few examples, we'll read three so you can see how very different and very unique they are. The Zulu one is even more different which is all very odd so so what we'll do is we'll start actually with with the one i find most interesting out of the english translations which is the john oxenford version which is men of Harlech, march to glory victory is whoring over the ye bright-eyed freedom stands before ye hear ye not her call at your sloth she seems to wonder rend the sluggish bonds asunder Let the war-cries deafening thunder, Every foe appall. Echoes loudly waking, Hill and valley shaking, Till the sound spreads wide around, The Saxons' courage breaking, Your foes on every side assailing, Forward press with heart unfailing, Till invaders learn with quailing, Cambria never can yield. Thou, who noble Cambria wrongest, Know that freedom's cause is strongest, freedom's courage lasts the longest, ending but with death. Freedom's countless hosts can scatter, freedom's stoutest mail can shatter, freedom's thickest walls will batter. Fate is in her breath. See, they now are flying, dead are heaped with dying. Over might hath triumphed right, our land to foes denying. Upon their soil we will—we never sought them. Love of conquest hither brought them, but this lesson we have taught them. Cambria never can yield. So that's that version. Now let me read you one of the original versions in English. This is the 1830 version, which was republished by Thomas Oliphant. And this again, the lyrics are different. Hark, I hear the foe advancing, barbed steeds are proudly prancing, helmets in the sunbeams glancing, glitter through the trees. Men of Harlech lie ye dreaming, see ye not their falchions gleaming, while their pennons, gaily streaming, flutter in the breeze. From the rocks rebounding, let the war cry sounding, summon all at Cambria's call, the haughty foe surrounding. Men of Harlech on to glory, see your banner famed in story. Waves these burning words before thee, Britain scorns to yield. Mid the fray, see dead and dying, friends and foes together lying, all around the arrows flying, scatter sudden death. Frightened steeds are wily neighing, brazen trumpets hoarsely braying, wounded men for mercy praying. With their parting breath. See, they're in disorder. Comrades, keep close order. Ever they shall rue the day. They ventured over the border. Now the Saxon flies before us. Victory banner floateth over us. Raise the loud exulting chorus. Britain wins the field. Now, there are Welsh lyrics which I... I'm not even going to attempt to read, as you can imagine. But let me just uh, cover one uh, version of it, which is the uh, the one that we s- talked about from uh, Tal Glindor, see thy comet flaming. Hear a heavenly voice declaiming. To the world below proclaiming, Cambria shall be free. While thy star on high is beaming, Soldiers from the mountains teeming with their spears and lances gleaming, come to follow thee. Hear the trumpets sounding while the steeds are bounding on the gale from the hill and dale. The war-cry is resounding, warriors famed in song and story coming from the mountain hoary, rushing to the fields of glory, eager for the fray, to the valleys wending, hearths and homes defending, with their proud and valiant prince FROM ANCIENT KINGS DESCENDING, SEE THE MIGHTY HOST ADVANCING, SUNBEAMS ON THEIR HELMETS DANCING, ON HIS GALLANT CHARGER PRANCING, GLINDUR LEADS THE WAY. NOW TO BATTLE THEY ARE GOING, EVERY HEART WITH COURAGE GLOWING, PRIDE AND PASSION OVERFLOWING, IN THE FURIOUS STRIFE. LO, THE DIN OF WAR enrages, VENGEANCE CROWNS THE HATE OF AGES, Sternly foe with foe engages, Feeding death with life. Hear the trumpets braying, And the horses neighing, Hot the strife while fiery foes, Are one another slaying, Arrows fly as swift as lightning, Shout on shout the tumult heightening, Conquest ruddy wing is brightening, Helmets, sword, and shield. With their lances flashing, Warriors wild are crashing, through the tyrant's serried ranks, while onward they are dashing. Now the enemy is flying, trampling on the dead and dying. Victory aloft is crying. Cambria wins the field. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening. I hope that this has been an interesting episode. Uh, and uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can comment and talk to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or you can speak with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. On that note, take care, everyone. We'll see you later. And now we'll play the Men of Harlech from a 1912 version of the song. Until next time, everyone, take care. Have a great day. Goodbye.
0: This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world.